Thanks for tuning in to Access Utah. Before we jump into an interesting discussion on a new novel, We Are Unprepared, with author Meg Little Riley. Some unfinished business from yesterday. You'll recall we uh, repeated a program uh, that originally aired uh, earlier this year. My interview with Sue Klebold, her book, A Mother's Reckoning, Living in the Aftermath of Tragedy. Uh, Sue Klebold is mother of Dylan Klebold, who, along with Eric Harris, uh, killed 12 students and a teacher, wounded 24 others before taking his own life, along with uh, Eric Harris, uh, on uh, April 20th, 1999, at Columbine High School. A uh, very interesting, impactful discussion. And uh, we received this email from Garth in uh, Cache Valley uh, after the uh, program. Um, Garth, I believe, would have posed these uh, questions to Mrs. Klebold uh, had the program uh, been live. We'll pose these, uh, throw these out to uh, the audience. Uh, These are the three questions from Garth. He says, did the parents work outside the home when Dylan was growing up? Question number two, was the family actively participating in a Christian religion during the time that uh, Dylan was uh, growing up? A third question, was Dylan active in the Boy Scouts of America in his uh, teenage years? Thanks for that email, Garth. You can uh, keep the questions and comments coming to upraxcess at gmail.com. And if you missed that uh, interview with Sue, Sue Klebold, go to our website, upr.org. Welcome now to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Ash and Pia moved from hipster Brooklyn to rustic Vermont in search of a more authentic life. But just months after settling in, the forecast of a superstorm disrupts their dream. Fear of an impending disaster splits their tight-knit community and exposes the cracks in their marriage. Where Isol was once a place of old farm families, rednecks, and transplants, it now divides into paranoid preppers, religious fanatics, and government tools, each at odds about what course to take. The publisher describes the new novel, We Are Unprepared, as an emotional journey, a terrifying glimpse into the human costs of our changing earth, and ultimately a cautionary tale of survival in the human spirit. The author, Meg Little-Riley, says her novel is an equal parts a small gesture of activism and a love letter to the woods she grew up in. Meg Little Riley is a former Treasury spokesperson under President Obama, Deputy Communications Director for the White House Office of Management and Budget, Communicator for the Environmental Defense Fund, and Producer for Vermont Public Radio. A native of Vermont, she's a UVM graduate with deep ties around the state. She currently lives in the Boston area with her husband and uh, two daughters. Meg Little Riley, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so grateful to be here. Uh, so you, uh, uh, the first question, of course, we're on public radio here. You worked for Vermont Public Radio. I did, yes. It was uh, my first job out of college, and I was there for three and a half years. It was an extraordinary experience. Uh, what did you do there? Well, I started answering the phones. Um, I did that for a while, <laughs> and it's actually a pretty great, great way to figure out what everybody does and what the inner workings look like, and I was totally hooked after that, and I was promoted to be a producer on a local show where we talked about uh, local municipal politics and issues, things like that. Um, I helped run the switchboard, and then I helped screen callers coming in, um, and then more production work after that. Um, but it was a it was a fantastic way to get to know the people of the state, and um, it, it was just cool. I liked the technical aspect. I liked everything. And uh, I, I know, you know, kind of insider in, in the industry, Vermont Public Radio has a has a great reputation, a great place to, to I guess, cut your teeth there. Um, you went on. I learned to, a lot from them. You went on to, to work uh, in the White House, or at least for the White House. I did, you, yeah. You were in the White House. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, that's right. Um, I was a uh, uh, first. I was in, in in the Obama administration. I was at the Treasury Department, and then in the White House Office of Management and Budget. I was a spokesperson for um, fiscal issues, essentially. Now, I, I, I doubt you're rubbing shoulders with President Obama much, but I don't know. Did you encounter him from time to time, or? Yeah, from time to time, it was. It's always a pretty thrilling experience to be in the room uh, with, with with a president. You don't usually. Uh, you, you don't get to be in that place without being a kind of uh, an extraordinary presence. So it was a really cool experience. So now you're from Vermont, right? Grew up in a, I, I don't know if it's small town, Brattleboro. You described it as a That's hamlet. Right. Yeah, it's a it's a funky little uh, town in the southern part of the state. Kind of artistic, kind of rural. It's got a it's got a, a great mix of people. Um, so I'm a I, I'm a country country girl at heart. Now, you, uh, interesting story how this uh, novel came to be. This is an early morning novel, right? You're still working at the at the White House, so f- between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. is when this, this novel happened? Uh, yeah, I woke up very early and wrote, wrote, wrote a little bit every morning before I got on our morning White House communications call um, and did that on my, on my walk in to work. So it was a, it was a rather exhausting year, but... Um, I, I I just woke up one day and realized that I, I couldn't I couldn't continue without doing it. I had to. This novel been sort of uh, brewing inside of me for a while, and it was time to just go. It wasn't a particularly convenient moment to start, but it had to be done. Mm-hmm. And you, uh, in an interview you gave, you said there's there's a little insanity involved in uh, in, in in any writing. Yeah, I mean it's. Um, it's not it's not all that logical there's a lot of sleep lost um and you have to i think some of it is uh is is a little obsession really gets you out of bed and keeps you going particularly before uh the, the path to being published is 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 a tough one there's a it, it takes a long time you get a lot of no's um but a little of that that insanity and well passion i guess is the is, is the complimentary word for it um it's a nice thing to have actually it feels feels good even when it's hard what was this impulse? What did you want to accomplish with the novel? Well, part of um, part of what I was what I was just interested in exploring with the novel was how we all sort of live with um, a, a new, very contemporary anxiety about uh, a, a changing uh, weather patterns. Uh, there's no doubt that our storms are getting more intense and more frequent. Um, I was also uh, at, at the time, my husband and I were thinking about starting our own family, and so I, I, I had a lot of questions about the relationship that our children would have to the natural world. Um, I, at the, I think it's it's a real privilege to be able to just kind of be be wild in the woods, and I do hope I hope too that our children would have the same thing. And so, in some ways, it was a it's, it, it's a story about conservation. Um, I, I wonder what what they'll look like, um, but. Also, just a celebration of um, of the woods that I grew up in as well, and you guys know because you have it's a it's a wildly different landscape, but boy, it's a breathtaking one in Utah. And it, it seems like you, you're connecting the dots here. Um, and it's like a lot of our audience would go along with you between it's a landscape you love, right, and therefore mm-hmm. you want to protect, and that's part of the worry, right? I wonder if you could tell me about the the landscape there, the the, the woods that you that you love. Yeah, yeah. Well, our mountains are smaller than you guys make them, um, but they th- there's 
the part of the story is actually set in the part of the state called the Northeast Kingdom, which is right up in the corner. It's almost in Canada. It's about 20 minutes from Canada. Um, I grew up going to this little modest little family. I think it started as a hunting cabin, and it was just a just a, really a cabin on a lake. And it's a, it's, a, it's a lot of evergreen trees, old growth forests, and there are there are families there that have been there for generations, and there are some some wacky newcomers, and everybody's kind of coexisting nicely. Um, it's actually, in, in many ways, I think the mix of old and new probably re- resembles a lot of the great parts of Utah as well. Um, and one of the things that happens in this story as the th- this great weather forecast comes in and everybody, uh, fear starts to mount, is some of those, that, that that cohabitation that it was that was going so nicely, uh, it, it lines start to draw and the fear kind of brings out brings out some harder lines and folks people kind of divide up into their respective corners. And and you write that the, the the fear of what's going to happen can be already damaging, let alone what's you know the the devastation that comes. Yeah, it's really it's really a story about who we are at our most frightened moments, what we turn to, the things that comfort us, the things that sort of that explain what's going on. Um, and I think all of, the, all of the characters in the story who they each kind of turn to different things, but I found all of those things to be at times a relatable and, and appealing in their own way. Um, and so I, I got to kind of try on, Try on all these different worldviews as I was writing the story. I'm a pretty pretty optimistic person in the end, so um, I think and I think that comes through. But uh, but fear does interesting things to us, and it's not in this story. It's not the kind of immediate fear that would trigger a sort of fight or flight response. Um, it, it, it's it's the more corrosive, slow, looming anxiety, um, and that has a way of creeping into our our behavior and our relationships. Um, so that was, I didn't really intend to write a story about, about relationships in this way, but as I kept sort of peeling back the layers of that onion, that's where it took me. I wonder if you'd uh, read the prologue for us. This is just one page oh, yes. long, and, and you get into some of these Fair issues here. It would be narcissistic to assume that the earth conjured a storm simply to alter the course of my life. More likely, we've been poisoning this world for years while ignoring the warning signs. And the storm wasn't so much a cosmic intervention as it was a predictable response to our collectively reckless behavior. Either way, the resulting destruction to North America and our orderly life in ISIL arrived so quickly that I swear we didn't see it coming. Looking back, I realized how comforting those months leading up to the storm had been as we focused on preparing for the disaster. News of the changing weather patterns gave each of our lives a new clarity and direction. It didn't feel enjoyable at the time, but it was a big concrete distraction in which to pour ourselves, even as other matters could have benefited from our attention. It was urgent, and living in a state of urgency can be invigorating. But the fear can be mistaken for purpose, which is even more dangerous than the threat itself. That's interesting. Fear can be mistaken for purpose. Um, And I wonder if you think that we're... You know, it's longer term, right? There's just a few months that they have to get ready in the in the novel for the the big storm. Mm-hmm. But if you take this on a, a bigger scale, you know, if if you believe that uh, bigger storms are coming and uh, you know adverse weather is coming and perhaps disaster is coming, if of mm-hmm. course isn't changed, um, 
I don't go. There can be numbness, I suppose. But do uh, you think at least some of us are are mistaking fear for purpose? Yeah, and and some of the characters in the story they they sort of they start to shape their lives around being prepared for calamity, um, which there's an argument to be made that that's a very that's a, that's a very logical thing to do and it's it's foresight. On the other hand, uh, how do you how do we all live fully in the present and hopefully if 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 we're if we're preparing for disaster? I mean, at some point you wonder are you are you are you hoping for a disaster just to make it all worthwhile? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I guess there there'd be some people you know? that would fit in that category. Yeah, and that makes me think. Um, of, I, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say as I um. As I researched the book, there's a there's a group of group of folks in this story uh, called preppers. I'm sure I'm sure you, you know of them. It's just, just a sort of um, unofficial self-identified group of folks that exist most on the internet, uh, kind of disaster preparedness enthusiasts. And that was was so interesting to 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 go down the rabbit hole and learn more about um, preppers and the prepper lifestyle. And there's a range, of course. You know, at one end it's Folks who want to be more self-reliant um, and and you know get, get off the electrical grid, maybe put some solar panels up. And at the other end, it, it it's wildly uh, paranoid. And so I, I I had to kind of ask myself, um, whereas everybody gets to decide where the line is, you know, where, between being being prepared and being consumed by the expectation of disaster. Mm. Do you have uh, preppers back east? We're familiar in the West with, uh, you know, used to be called survivalists. Uh, right, you know, right. The, the stereotype is living out in a bunker, uh, you know, somewhere with a bunch of guns and uh, and uh, an element of paranoia. There, there's an, an over, there are others, uh, kind of a substrain, that, that are just want to get off the grid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, but, I mean, we've got... I, I, think, I, think, I, think we've, I think we've got all those varieties. Sur- the survivalists... I do think there's probably a stronger contingent at West, just based on you know my sort of unofficial research, but um, but they they come in they come in all flavors too. You know, I I knew folks growing up in Vermont who really who wanted to live completely off the grid, credit card free, no um, you know entirely uh, uh, self powered, um, and they were more of a, a hippie variety of them. And there's like you know, as I was doing this research, there was stuff I saw where I thought, "Boy, that's so cool! I, I I'd like to know how to do this. Um, uh, you know, I'd like to know more about renewable power uh, at the at, at like the basic domestic level and growing more food." And um, so there's a really appealing logic to, to to some of it, and then some of it can it it, it can can creep into a, a, a little wackier, I would say. Um, but I went in without any biases about it because I think um, I think it's a it's a very it's a very natural human impulse uh, mm-hmm. to want to be able to take care of yourself and your family too. No the reaction, perhaps, to this book um, would depend on where you stand on climate change. I would imagine you know, a lot of people just don't don't think it's a real thing. Other people are very worried about it. But I wonder, in a certain sense, if you do, if you think it's a, a really big problem, you're worried about it, would you say we should all be preppers in a certain sense? I think 
the better um, I, I, I think I think the, the better sort of preparation is the more is the, is a longer term kind where we look at um, how public policy affects emissions and things like the things that are contributing uh, to climate change down the road, the stuff that'll help make the world a little cleaner and safer for our children. Um, I'm not terribly prepared still, even having done all this research. Um, but but the book itself, it is true. I, I, I am a, I'm an environmentalist and I'm a firm um, activist on the, uh, on the climate change front. But it's not an overtly political story. In fact, I think the term climate change is only in the story once. Um, I think I, I, I would be thrilled to talk to somebody who is not doesn't doesn't uh, concur with this science on man-made climate change who reads the book because I I think there's also room there's room for discussion it's really a story also about how humans respond at times of fear in a lot of ways it's definitely not a partisan story um, and I think it in many ways is is larger than any political debate Mm-hmm. in the country right now this idea of um how do we do we turn to a kind of rugged individualism or a more communal and collective approach to solving our problems yeah i should point out to make clear this it's you know it's a it's a really good story and as you've said uh, you know people don't want to be preached to in their in their fiction um mm-hmm. there is a term and i, I don't know if you embrace this cli-fi yeah, yeah, I learned about it after I after I put the book out. It's interesting. So, so climate science fiction, I guess, or climate fiction. That's what this is. I guess it's, talking about. It's, yeah, it's it's sort of an organizing term for books that are coming out uh, that have climate change at the sort of front and center in them. I didn't even know that it was a, it was a trend while I was writing this, and it's not. It sounds like sci-fi, but I think it just describes uh, any kind of fiction that that addresses climate change in some way. So um, I think, you know, hey, if it, if it helps you, helps, helps explain a, uh, an emerging trend, I'm all for it. Yeah. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, we'll get into talking about the main characters, Ash and Pia, who are uh, from Brooklyn, right? Brooklyn hipsters, and they, they I think yeah. they're both from Vermont, so they go back. And this, uh, as mm-hmm. the novel opens, they're three months into this bold new life where they're, they're going to go back to and live in Vermont. Um, and I'll have you uh, read uh, page 19 there as well. Uh, following the break, we're talking with uh, uh, Meg Little Riley. Her novel is We Are Unprepared. More following the break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. Lots of people think resilience is an individual characteristic, but it's also a team characteristic. Teams with resilience don't blame each other when they fail. They use failure as a learning opportunity. Blame is found in the system, not an individual. Learning is found in individuals, and learning is what creates resilience. Team resilience can lead to greater productivity. It also leads to greater innovation. People are more likely to risk innovation when they know the team will back them up no matter what. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are spending the hour with Meg Little-Riley. 
Her novel is called We Are Unprepared. Uh, in this novel, Ash and Pia move from hipster Brooklyn to rustic Vermont in search of a more authentic life, but just months after settling in, the forecast of a superstorm disrupts their dream. Fear of an impending disaster splits their tight-knit community and exposes the cracks in their marriage. Uh, Megalyn Riley is former Treasury spokesperson under President Obama, Deputy Communications Director for the White House Office of Management and Budget, Communicator for the Environmental Defense Fund, and Producer for Vermont uh, Public Radio. She lives in the Boston area. And you're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, toll-free, or uh, you can reach us uh, by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at uh, gmail.com. Uh, so, make a little rally, uh, if I could have you read that uh, portion of page uh, 19. Yes, thank you. We talked about self-reliance in those days as if it was a state of higher consciousness. It was the explanation we gave for leaving our jobs in New York and starting a new life in Vermont. We wanted to grow things and build things, preserve things and pickle things. We wanted to play our own music and brew our own beer. We believed, this we believed, was how one lived a real life. There was a pious promise in the notion of self-reliance, a promise that we would not only feel a deep sense of pride and moral superiority, but also that it would ensure eternal marital bliss. Some of this we were not wrong about. It was supremely satisfying to eat cucumbers that we had grown and sit on furniture we had made, two Adirondack chairs assembled from a kit, technically. Pia was taking a pottery class in those days, and our house was filled with charmingly lopsided creamers and water pitchers with her initials carved into the underside, like a proud child's bounty from summer camp. I'd taken a week-long summer seminar on beekeeping, and the unopened bee materials that I'd ordered online were still stacked neatly against the house. When news of the storms broke, we were only three months into this real living adventure, and we hadn't learned much at all yet. That tells you uh, quite a bit about uh, Ash and, and Pia. This is a, a type I think we all all know. that it, We talked about self-reliance, they say, in those days, as if it were a state of higher consciousness. This is They're embracing a certain lifestyle because they feel like it's a higher lifestyle. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a more desirable lifestyle. Yeah, I think... Um, I, I think in some ways we've we've all got a little of this inside of us innately the desire to be uh to to be in un, independent um and and to do it for ourselves but I also think that some of it is a is a pretty modern trend too there's um you know people in their 20s and 30s there's sort of a modern back to the land movement going on in different parts of the country you guys I know um People who just want to live in a beautiful place, a simple life, certainly go uh, to to Utah um, and Vermont's another place like that. So it's 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 a little bit human nature, and I think a little bit of a commentary on our times. And uh, over the page, uh, Ash says we were smug, sure, but I still believe we were basically right in our quest to find pleasure in simpler pursuits. And they, they kind of they have introspective periods where they debate over the you know purity of their 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 motives. But essentially, mm -hmm. they, they want a simpler, a simpler uh, lifestyle. They're just three months in, and reports start surfacing of a superstorm. Did uh, did you research superstorms? Yeah. So for the the initial forecasts are just for for a big uh, a big storm season, and then the those those get more refined and specific as time passes. As I conceiving of this storm, I looked at all of the. The, sort of the worst-case scenario storm forecast for all the big storms we've had in the last 10 years. And I dialed them up like 
one degree or two. Um, but I wanted it to be within the realm of possibility. Um, so this is a bigger storm than the Northeast has ever seen, but it doesn't read like science fiction, and it, it is not. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, as what one of the one of the things that that inspired the story was in my um, final months in uh, my final year in the Obama White House. I remember looking up at a television screen at one point while Hurricane Irene was passing through the Northeast, and there was footage on CNN of my hometown and uh, watching live a sort of rushing river of flooding water going through Main Street and just sort of choking back tears. And it, it, it seemed impossible. It's a landlocked state. It's, it's, it's not the kind of place where storms like that had ever been before. So that was a pretty extraordinary moment, and it, and it really stuck with me. Yeah, it seemed odd to me that there there'd be flooding in Vermont, but I but you know, mm-hmm. actually, it happened, right? And and, right. and as storms increase in intensity, it could happen with greater frequency. Um it, it Superstorm Sandy, that you know, that seems like an obvious parallel. Obviously Katrina. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could you talk about the, the flooding going on right now and or has happened recently in Louisiana. Yes, and it uh, it's it, it it's it's so feels so grim. It just breaks my heart to um to be talking about fiction too at a time when there's just there's a lot of a lot of real life destruction. Um, but yeah, I, Sandy was a big the the actual weather powers of uh, weather patterns of Sandy. I was looking at pretty closely for this one because there's a certain predictability to the way the storms move um, and cross in the Northeast. So some of it was was pretty reliable. I mean, obviously, I'm not a climate. Um, or weather scientists, but there's it's generally it's plausible in mm. a broad way. And you, uh, reading the bottom of page sixteen, uh, the radio voices went on. They're listening to the radio, NPR, of course, mm-hmm. and uh, want to discuss global ramifications of extreme weather, food scarcity, political unrest, war. And uh, I think a lot of times we don't necessarily consciously connect those dots. And you you go on to connect some of these dots on a very local scale. Yeah, um, there. You know, these. It's 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 pretty astounding that these things. We know they sort of happen in in remote places, uh, but sometimes they happen right here. Uh, is the the flooding that's going on right now in Louisiana, and certainly um, things we've seen in the past with hurricanes Katrina and Sandy. Um, it's it's amazing how quickly order can break down. And then just as amazing is how quickly we forget. Um, I was speaking with a, a radio host in Louisiana yesterday, actually, and he was talking about news fatigue. Uh, the, the, their greatest fear is that we stop, we stop hearing it after, you know, at, at a certain point. Some of that is probably inevitable. It's the way our brains work. But um, how, do we, how do we maintain a sense of empathy and awareness um, of of this sort of catastrophe in other places when it's not right there before our eyes, and and they just keep coming, right? So so how do we yeah. maintain that empathy for all the places it's happening? That's right, I know, and in, in different ways. Even um, right now, I'm in the Boston area. There's a, it's a we're in a drought, the worst drought that this area has ever seen. The uh, number of uh, farms around here aren't producing what they what, what they normally do. We're on water bans. I mean, water bans in New England. This I grew up here. This is a strange moment. Uh, so it, 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 it's hard to deny that that changes are afoot. Hmm. 
And it can be, I don't know, it can be isolating, can separate communities. I'm thinking about when California went through their recent, you know, horrible drought. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, uh, you know, I'm ashamed to admit that one of the impulses I had was, you know, thank heaven where it's not as bad here in Utah. But then, you know, then I tried to counteract that with and try to be empathize with them. It's like a pretty human response. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you you um, you write a lot about fear and what what fear does to 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 people. Um, so in this case, we have extreme weather and, and a mounting crisis. Um, some people turned in your novel to religion, some to alcohol, others to to guns. Uh, that you know, it seems seems to fit with <laughs> you know a lot of people that we know. Yeah, and I, I don't want to. I, I don't mean to imply that those are all. Uh, th- those are equatable things. In fact, in the story, the the religion that it refers to is a kind of false prophet who comes through peddling a variety of religion that can make him quite rich. So I think religion can also be a force for incredible uh, strength and goodwill in times of crisis. But in this case, it's something. It, uh, 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 someone with with darker motives is taking advantage of people's fear uh and 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 it's and i also felt a sense of sympathy for the people who were taken by him because i think it's easy to look for explanations as well uh just as it's easy to uh to understand the folks who turn to you know more chemical vices fear fear is hard Mm. And of course, we don't have to have an impending crisis. There, you know, we we face fears every day in our in our lives. This is just taking it to an extreme, mm-hmm. I suppose, and and facing it as a society. It's interesting. Uh, I don't want to give away too much, but uh, the mayor, um, you know, is trying to rally the the community. And then there's a prepper group, mm-hmm. and Ash and P are kind of pulled in in different directions. Yeah, that's right. The the all the big cleavages in the in the community they're coming right down to at the domestic level for them because they're kind of they're picking sides that aren't um it's it, it, it's driving them apart at home as well and one of the big questions facing the folks in this town is whether they can all get together to help alleviate some of the expected flooding but it requires a real communal approach to things and um for some that doesn't seem logical. Um, it, it makes more sense for them to look inward and batten down their own hatches. Um, and so that's another kind of question of like, what what's our worldview? Mm-hmm. What, how do how, how do how do we want to respond at moments like this as individuals? And it's the worldview we the worldview we have inside, right? That, that we, that's how we respond. Yes. Right, exactly. And so it, it was interesting to me to reading, uh, you know, the, the book that um, in some cases, in some ways, society is fragile, isn't it? We we agree to get along, and uh, then if pressure is put at pressure points, that's when the real test comes. Yeah, that's so beautifully put. That's that's kind of sums it all up, actually. Um, and it's fragile. Our we're, we're, our nerves are fragile. I think our own sanity can be a little fragile at times, although we can bolster it with good relationships, good habits, all that stuff that we that we already know what we believe in in this world. Um, but we're all fragile as individuals, and and order is a little more fragile than we'd like to believe. As somebody who worked in government, I I tend to think that 
the government has things running fairly well. So it was kind of interesting to go down this path of writing this story and ha- and have to acknowledge that that may not be so. Um, I actually, while I, uh, it was probably early on as I, as I was writing this story, we had a big snowstorm come through Washington, D.C. Uh, we called it, it was called Snowpocalypse at the time. Mm-hmm. can't remember what yeah, the Yeah, I remember that, yeah. It was wild. I mean, we got like three and a half feet of snow in three days. I've never seen anything like it in the mid-Atlantic. And everything shut down. Everything. Uh, there was for for there were schools that didn't open for two weeks, and the public transportation was just at a standstill. Um, it it was really nuts, and it seemed particularly nuts because this is where all of our elected officials spend most of their time, and it they. In some ways, it also is a reminder that the best way to get the attention of, of our elected officials is to, like, uh, you know, make their Amtrak trains stop running, right? When it's <laughs> right there before your face, it's hard to turn away. Mm-hmm. And um, it was it, it felt a little Banana Republic for a while. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it, it tested one's faith in government. <laughs> yeah, a real pressure point, yeah. Um, yeah. I wonder if you'd go with me just a diversion into current politics, uh, because I, I, it feels like in the, you know, this endless, very unusual campaign that there there's some social fraying going on. I'm, re- I'm reading reports that you know the friendships are being destroyed on Facebook at a record rate during this political uh, uh, season, um, <laughs> and I, I don't know what this. Uh, I don't know what you th- you know relating this up to pressure points that might come with yeah. extreme weather or or extreme anything that puts pressure on our society. Yeah, I feel like that anger is just it, it is coming from a place of fear, and unfortunately, the the national political discussion, the entire campaign, feels like the, both campaigns, the, the the whole discussion of political campaigns feels like. Fear is the only weapon being used at the moment on both sides, and um, it's, it definitely brings out the worst in all of us. And I don't think uh, I, I don't think there's as much to be frightened of as um, as as the national news would tell you most of the time, and the things coming from both political parties. I think I think things are actually I think humans are better than the way it all looks at this particular moment. Mm. Yeah, there, uh, there is, you know, it's, it's been studied, right, the, the, the local news effect. The, the, yeah, the local news effect. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why it was nice. Um, it's nice to write about a community, you know, having grown up in a small community. I think um, at, at it, even when things, when things are, are pretty dark at a national level, um, when you wake up in the morning and you have to see your neighbor who you know votes in a different way from you at the grocery store, or at church, or at uh, picking up their kids from the same school. You, I, I just think that, that civility is so much more important. And I, th- at the community level, people are people still know how to be kind to one another. And I think the internet is not a great example of what humanity looks like right now because the anonymity really enables um, some, enables some dark stuff. But boy, I, I do have a lot of a lot of faith in the interaction at the community level. So should I disconnect from Facebook and, and go run for school board? <laughs> what, what, what do we do? 
we probably all should. But um, I, you know, I'm kind of I'm I'm crossing my fingers that this all ends soon. I'm really looking forward to late November when <laughs> I, as somebody who came from politics and government, this is the most joyless moment in politics that I can remember. I, I am disheartened. I have no, I have nothing hopeful to say about it. Yeah, that maybe this Thanksgiving will be will be especially joyful because this you know our that's long, what we'll be giving thanks for. Our long national nightmare will be over. Uh, just just <laughs> just one more political side, and we'll get back to the uh, the, the book. Um, working in the Obama White House, I wonder, and, and I'm sure you never sat down, President Obama, and, and had him you know bury his soul to you, but um, it seems like this uh, this phenomenon where the party out of power just refuses to accept you know that that the other party won the white house and it just seems to have been ratcheting up the last few uh, cycles certainly true with with president obama there there's a whole subset of the country who just did not accept you know president obama that's where you got the whole birther mo- uh, movement and, and and the like what was was that ever acknowledged in working the white house was that ever talked about yeah was i it, mean it it, it 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 colored nearly everything we did because the White House, no president has all that much unilateral, unilateral power. So any of the legislative changes that we were, um, we were, we were trying to advocate for, we needed Congress for. And obstructionism doesn't, it just doesn't yield good governance, regardless of which side it's coming from. Um, and I don't, I was in Washington, though I didn't work um, uh, uh I, actually, I worked. I was in the in the Senate um, for part of the time in the in the Bush administration, but but I wasn't. Um, I, I obviously didn't have the same vantage point. But in the first term of the the George Bush administration, it felt like there was a greater appreciation for compromise, um, let it, and getting something done. And it's it's really really deteriorated since then and there's nothing tougher than obviously having to um having to work on policy that doesn't feel quite right but not quite right is a heck of a lot better than nothing at all mm-hmm. um there's a lot more harm done especially to i think the most vulnerable people in our society when we uh with obstructionism the ri- the rich folks in America will, are always going to be okay um but i worry about most um, middle and working class Americans when things are so stagnant in Washington. And I worry that uh, not much is going to change with regard to obstructionism, no matter who is elected the White House. I know. I know. I worry about that too, as well. Not yeah. going to accept whoever is president. Uh, let's yeah. um, let's end this segment on that cheery note. We'll we'll take a break uh, <laughs> and uh, and we'll come back talk more about we are unprepared. Meg Little Riley is my guest. Her uh, fascinating uh, debut novel uh, is about a couple who moves from uh, Brooklyn to uh, to their native uh, Vermont. They want to get uh, back to nature. They want to be self-reliant. Uh, but a uh, a big storm is heading their way, possible disaster. Uh, we'll talk more about this following the break. This week in This American Life. By the time we started dating, I was 14. And he was 21. But in the beginning, he fooled me, too. I was like, oh, my God, he's really nice. I would never expect him to actually ever lay a hand on you. But this teenager stayed in this relationship for years. And while she was in it, she recorded, really, I think, one of the most remarkable radio stories I have ever heard. 
trying to make sense of why she could not bring herself to break up. Join us Saturday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. UPR radio listeners make smart investment choices. They invest their time, their passion, their money, and they support Utah Public Radio. Make an investment in your patrons. Become a UPR sponsor. Call 435-797-3141 for more information. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We reached our last segment with Meg Little-Riley. Uh, Meg Little-Riley uh, worked in the President Obama's uh, White House uh, for the Treasury Department, also the uh, Office of Management and Budget. Uh, she was communicator for the Environmental Defense Fund, was a producer for Vermont Public Radio. She's a native of Vermont, a UVM graduate, and uh, she currently lives in the Boston area with her husband and two daughters. Her novel, a fascinating novel called We Are Unprepared, it follows Ash and Pia as they move from hipster Brooklyn to rustic Vermont in search of a more authentic life. But just months after settling in, the forecast of a superstorm disrupts their dream. And uh, as the storm approaches, uh, the town is dividing into paranoid preppers, religious fanatics, and government tools, each at odds about what course to uh, to take. And Meg Little Riley says her novel is an equal parts a small gesture of activism and a love letter to the woods she grew up in. Meg Little Riley, any time we talk about preparedness, emergency preparedness, I always connect this. We think about this. A lot of people think about this in Utah in connection with the LDS Church, which uh, preaches preparedness, wants their members to you know have a supply of food uh, and and uh, supplies in case of case of a disaster. I wonder as you've thought about, uh, and the title of the book, We Are Unprepared, of course that cuts many different ways. Um, what have you come to with personal preparedness uh, after you've, the re- you've researched this book? Well, I think, um, you know, I, I, I'm certainly personally always drawn as like somebody who grew up in a rural place. I do love the idea of being pretty self-reliant. I am far less than I would like to be but I, I am very interested in some of the, the easier aspects of, uh, you know, modern homesteading. I try to make as much stuff as I can at home, grow some stuff. Uh, I'm not great at it, but I, I'm always, I'm always trying a little bit. But I, it, I, it, it kind of ends there for me. I don't, I ha- I can't figure out a way to be ultra prepared and to not live in a state of fear. I think that that's the challenge. So, you know, now, now we've got, we've got some water in the basement. We've got batteries in all our flashlights. And I, you know, I'd like to um, always keep working on that. Also because a general sense of preparedness, it just, it, it feels like a good, it feels like a good way to, um, to protect your family. Once you have kids, it's nice to, it's nice to feel like you're thinking ahead a little further. Um, but I'm not terribly prepared. Um, I, do I think in the end I, I also come down on the side of I, I think uh, community and and faith and family are are going to be as important as that water we keep down in the basement on some level. Um, so I'm, so I, I live probably more more in the moment than one would think from reading a book like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can understand that. Um, tell me about that. You said you're, you kind of embraced the new homesteading uh, movement. What, what's what's the impulse there? That I can see some attraction to that idea. Yeah, well, well, some of it is just that it is. You know, it's funny, the story, it, it's a little bit of a parody of, uh, of, of these, you know, these, these, 
affluent 30-somethings who, who have this idea of being more self-reliant. In some ways, I feel like I'm picking on me and a lot of the people in my, uh, in my demographic, uh, and we probably deserve it. But it is supremely satisfying to feel like you know how to do things, right? You know how to, if you know how to grow something you can eat or fix something with duct tape, my goodness, it, it, feels, it, it feels refreshingly different in this modern world to know how to do something with your hands that's actually real. Um, and that, that's, that's especially in the, the kinds of jobs I've had, um, which you could probably, um, they're, they're, they're the kind, they're the kinds of jobs that, uh, don't make you particularly, uh, prepared to, uh, to fend for yourself in moments of uh, crisis. So I think maybe as an antidote to that, I like the idea of, uh, knowing how to do something that actually could like uh help protect me and my family it's kind of it, it it feels like a really um a really uh basic human mammal desire mm. and by the way there's not much you can't do with duct tape so you, you got to have duct tape Oh, I'm that's, with you. That's a that's a necessity. I wonder. I want to finish the conversation here. We just have about three minutes left. To, to, to going back to the land, and I, I wonder. I was interested in the poem you selected uh, at the beginning of part one. I wonder if you could read that. Just tell me sure, briefly sure. why you why you selected this. This is from 1860. All right. Um, so I'll, I'll I'll just I'll tell you briefly. All of the poet there, there are a couple poems in here. I actually, in the first draft of this, I had lots and lots of them, but um, I, uh, I probably not everybody is interested in um, in, in old archived uh, poetry from the woods. But I, I definitely loved it. These were all this is all poetry written by old Vermonters. Um, in most of it is from the 19th century, um, and it. it all the stuff I selected helps describe the land and the experience of being there. So I'll read this one. I pine, I pine for my woodland home. I long for the mountain stream that through the dark ravine flows on till it finds the sun's bright beam. I long to catch once more a breath of my own pure mountain air and lay me down on the flowery turf in the dim old forest there. Oh, for a gush of the wild woods strain that the birds sang to me then. Oh, for an hour of the fresher life I knew in that haunted glen. For my path is now in the stranger's land, and though I may love full well their grand old trees and their flowery meads, yet I pine for thee, sweet Dell. I've sat in the homes of the proud and great, I've gazed on the artist's pride, yet never a pencil has painted thee, thou rill of the mountainside. And though bright and fair may be other lands, and as true they're friends and free, yet my spirit will ever fondly turn Green Mountain Home to thee. And uh, that poem is called Green Mountain Home, and it is, it's written by a woman uh, we know only as Miss A.W. Sprague of Plymouth, Vermont, published in 1860. Hmm. And I just love the, I love the exuberant adoration for uh, the, for the land and the smell and the air uh, that that speaks to me. And it, it, it for me, it, it and maybe this is part of what you were going for. It, it underscores the universality of this impulse, right? That and the, mm-hmm. what the land and landscape yeah. does for us, and that we internalize this. I'm I'm guessing you carry your Vermont landscape around with you. 
Absolutely. It does. It, it becomes a part of who you are, who you are, and it kind of, it shapes who you are. You guys know, um, it being from a beautiful and rugged place, it's, uh, it, it, it really is, is a part of you. Uh, just a minute left. What, uh, are you working on something new? Yes, I am. Um, I should have, uh, hopefully the next one will be out in the next 12 to 18 months. It's, um, going to be set in a different place uh the natural world will play a certainly play a role but uh very different uh different themes some still some contemporary issues but that's um that's where the, the similarities end so i'm excited to to talk to you again one day all right sounds good uh in the meantime we are unprepared is out getting good good reviews meg little riley is uh, the author uh, thank you so much for joining us today oh thank you so much tom i really had a great time And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We go now to a commentary from Cache Valley resident Gina Wickward. There seems to be some homing mechanism residing in me, sort of like those carrier pigeons you see in war movies. Drop me off anywhere, and by golly, I head back to where I used to live, even almost a hundred years ago. Well, maybe not that long ago, but I'm talking the golden oldie days of yesteryear. I've told you already about the peculiar tendency of mine, but my husband has it too. In truth, I think it's in the human DNA to go back and search your beginnings. I've reported we found where I lived 60 years ago in the Canal Zone. We found Vin's three childhood homes in the Princeton, New Jersey area. We found my old houses in Castro Valley, California, and in Yuma, Arizona. We've looked at our old house in Fairbanks, and he's found his old apartment in Houston. And this is taking it really way far. We've succumbed and tried to find the old hospitals we were born in. Thirty-five years ago, when we lived in Washington, D.C., we did a road trip with our kids that included a good part of the New England coastal towns. It also included several days in Manhattan. While there, we sought out my grandmother's house in Brooklyn and my old house that was across the street, and we found them. Sadly, my grandma's house and four others next to it had been torn down to make room for a small brick apartment. But the remainder of the neighborhood was just as I remembered it. Tall, leafy old trees, narrow three-storied homes, tiny patches of front lawn, narrow driveways leading to old garages in the backyard. Finding all this was easy in the dark ages because my parents were still alive and had supplied us with the address, the crossroads, the nearby parks, etc., Very helpful in the pre-Google era. Last month, Finn and I were in Manhattan, this time to see our older son and his family. One morning, we took off via subway to Brooklyn, once again to check on my old neighborhood to see what had transpired during the last 30-plus years. This time, we were on foot, not in a car like before. Also, I had, for some strange reason, probably age, failed to jot down a rather crucial detail, like the house address. I'll remember it, I'll remember it, I said, waving a cheery hand at my husband. I'll, like, kind of feel my way there. Ever skeptical, Vin, let me yak with the subway ticket man for ten minutes. I was certain it was on East 8th Street, so he concluded it was somewhere off Coney Island Avenue. He then sighed and advised us to take the one train to Brooklyn and transfer it such and such and take the Q train to the Atlantic Avenue stop. 
We popped up at Atlantic Avenue, all right, but it was miles, we thought, from East 8th Street. As we walked and crossed busy streets, I had a sudden flash from the past. It's off Cordelieu Road, I said. Groaning, Vin asked a person where that was. We were pointed westward and told it was way far away. Well, it wasn't that bad, but it was a hike. We finally found East 8th Street and the red brick apartment that still stood where Grandma's 420 used to exist. And my old house still stood across the street, along with still tall, leafy trees. A turbaned man standing in the front door watched us as we pointed and looked, pointed and looked, took pictures, and pointed and looked. In perfect English, he asked what we were doing, and we answered he was living in my old house. His eyes widened in delight, and he ushered us in. His shy children milled around us as he showed off the rooms. I quickly confirmed the staircase on which I used to sit, confirmed the window views, confirmed that it was indeed my old house. He was so happy for me and invited us to return. I expect this was the last time I would search for East 8th Street in Brooklyn, but his kindness filled our hearts with joy. I have only one more house to find. It's the one in a Shia Air Force base on the Japanese island of Kyushu. For Vin, it's his old apartment in Beirut, Lebanon. I know you won't believe it, but they're still on our bucket list. This is Gina Wickwar. Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org. <laughs> 